We're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 6, which we read earlier, so it'd be worth having that open in front of you, if you've got a Bible with you. Over the past few weeks, Joseph's been taking us through a little series on life in lockdown, different, uh, considering what the Bible says about different aspects of uh, the unique position we find ourselves in during this time of lockdown. Now, today's message uh, deals with an issue which is relevant for any times of our life, not unique to times of lockdown, but an issue which is uh, exacerbated or made more difficult due to lockdown. I'm going to be considering the issue of sin. Uh, How do we deal with sin in the life of a believer? Now, lockdown has added unique temptations in this area of life. Perhaps you find yourself with more time, much more time than you've ever had before. Perhaps you find yourself with much less time. You're worked much harder than you've ever found yourself worked before. You're trying to do a full-time job with four kids running around at home uh, beneath your feet. Um, We are cut off from other believers who would normally be an encouragement and a help to us. And as we get into the habit of becoming more lenient with ourselves in many other areas of life, the way we cook, the way we dress, the way we tidy the house, it's easy to apply that same leniency to our own fight against sin. Now, what I want to remind you of today, then, is the truth that as believers, we are free from the power of sin. As believers, we are free from the power of sin in Christ Jesus. I want to refute any lingering notion that you might have that sin is a little luxury for you to enjoy if you've been good the rest of the week. I want to speak against the lies that sin feeds us that it's offering you something good and worthwhile for you to indulge yourself in. I want to encourage you to persevere if you feel like sin has really taken hold of you in the last few weeks or months. What I don't want to do is I don't want to give you a big long list of do's and don'ts. Don't watch this TV show, don't read this news outlet, and so on. Uh, as though the answer to fighting sin was simply a matter of self-discipline. A big list of rules for you to follow. In order to do this, what I'm going to do then is first consider what sin is. I don't think we'll make any progress in fighting sin unless we're first reminded of what sin actually is. What is the enemy that we're attacking here? Then I want to consider what Jesus Christ has done for us in that fight against sin before finally considering the application of how it affects living through lockdown. So first... What do we mean by sin? Sin is far more than bad behaviour. It's tempting to characterise sin as uh, those specific things that we do which God's word tells us not to do. And there's a legitimacy in that. The Bible itself says sin is lawlessness. You want a definition of sin? Lawlessness. Anytime you break God's law. So if you can think of a, a law against greed... And you break that law, that's sin. If you think of a law against stealing, you break that law, that's sin. Uh, you think of a law against sexual impurity, and you break that law, then that's sin. And it, it's tempting to do this, especially if there's one particular area of sin that you fall into frequently. You characterise sin in your life as this one particular sin. There's a case for this definition of sin. Uh, in fact, Paul in Romans 7, the next chapter on from what we read, Paul would say, look, I wouldn't know what coveting was unless the law had first told me, here's the law, don't do this. I wouldn't have known the full extent of my sin. 
However, if we limit sin to just bad behaviour, and if we only ever define it in terms of bad behaviour, then we miss the point, really. And we come dangerously close to deceiving ourselves. After all, some of us can get quite good, can't we, at living a life of respectability and hiding many of those transgressions, that breaking of the law, from even ourselves, if not least those around us. The Bible shows us that sin is more than just bad behaviour. You can see this in the way, for example, there are very few limited times when somebody breaks the law, but it is not counted as sin. Jesus speaks of the way David went into the temple and ate the bread that he was not lawfully allowed to eat, yet it was not a sinful thing for him to do. Similarly, you hear of times when uh, people follow the laws of God, yet remain sinful. One great example that I came across this week, in Luke chapter 8, you read of a demon bowing down, paying homage to Jesus Christ, praying to him, begging him for mercy. What more religious posture could you get? And yet this is a demon. Surely the demon is not sinless in his actions. And from Romans, the the book that we're having a look at this morning, chapter 5, verse 13, before the law was given, sin was in the world. So you can have sin regardless of whether the law describing the sin is there or not. So then, what is sin? If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, you you read the account of the the first sin, the fall, is what we often call it. And in chapter 3, verse 6, you get the description of what motivates Eve to first break God's command. It says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. At least two parts to her motivation there. One is, she saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Well, that's fairly natural reason to take the fruit, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you've got to eat, you've got to feed yourself. But Genesis chapter 2 tells us the whole garden was filled with plants that were, in the very same words, good for food and pleasing to the eye. It wasn't out of necessity that she had to take the fruit of this particular tree that God had commanded not to eat from. There's a second motivator in that verse, that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. And this is the lie that the serpent had fed her. The serpent had come and said, look, God is surely hiding something from you. God knows that when you eat of this, you won't die, but you'll be made wise. You'll be made like him. And it's that lie that Eve believed. She believed the lie that God must be holding back something good. He's holding it away from her. He doesn't want her to have it. And she believes a lie that is therefore not just about what God has said, but also a lie about what God is like. He's no longer the good God, the provider, the carer, their father. He becomes their enemy, the mean-spirited ruler who just wants to to take everything for himself and and, and corner his people um, away from the good things. And so Eve takes what she believes will be good for her. If you wanted one word to summarise Eve's sin, uh, and sin in general, many have been offered. Uh, One could be unbelief. Another could be pride. 
Another could be rejection. Rejection of God, that is. Rejection of what God has taught her and instructed her to. You see, these three options, they're not contradictory. I hope you see how they all fit in together because they're all, they're all chosen to describe Eve's heart which has turned away from trusting and depending upon God and choosing to make herself the, the king over her own decisions and actions. It's that unbelief, that pride, that rejection that sits behind Eve's sin, that sits behind the sin of the Pharisees in their self-righteousness, that sits behind the sin of idolatry in the Gentiles, that sits behind any and every sin that followed from Adam and Eve's first sin. And sin makes a promise, and we continue to fall for its lies. Sin makes a promise that if you, if you do this thing, if you, if you set yourself up in the place of God, if you reject him, if you live in unbelief, you will receive goodness, beauty, satisfaction, comfort, leisure, freedom, life, victory. All sorts of good, enjoyable, worthwhile things to have, aren't they? And yet when Eve follows the pattern that sin shows her, what does she find? In Genesis 3, first she feels guilt for what she's done. Then she feels shame at her nakedness. And then she has fear, fear of God, so they go and hide. Then comes bitterness and disunity as Adam and Eve blame one another for what's gone on. And eventually we see the effects of sin brought in by the curse. All pain and all toil and ultimately death is brought in as a result of sin. Not as an arbitrary punishment that God just throws down because he's so angry. But surely is the legitimate conclusion. If you reject and turn away from the one who has given life, what will be the result other than death? When you experience any of those emotions or effects in your life today, fear, guilt, shame, bitterness, pain, toil, death, when you experience any or all of those things, you can know that even though it might not be as a direct result of your own sinful behavior, it is always a result of sin. Those things are here as a result of sin. They're a symptom of the unbelief that resides in each one of us. The pride and rejection of God. Why, why are we defining sin in this way as unbelief? as rejection of God. Three reasons. First, it shows us that everyone is a sinner. If you consider sin only to be this list of bad things that you ought not to do, then it becomes easier to convince yourself that you really, possibly, aren't really a sinner. And especially when you look at the lives of other people, perhaps you don't know so well, you only see their, their outward deeds that they display uh, to the people around them, can easily become hard to convince yourself that other people are sinners. Can they really be all that bad? How many of God's rules have they really actually broken? But when you see sin as not just breaking of a rule, but actually a rejection of God himself, it's much more easy to see, yeah, so much of my life is done in, is lived in rejection or ignorance or apathy towards God. And so many of the world's lives are lived in ignorance of God and sometimes an outright rejection of him. So first it helps us to see that everyone is a sinner. Secondly, it helps us to see what is meant when the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. 
Every person is born a slave to sin. Really? Addicted to sin? Stuck in a, in a, in a harmful habit, a trap of, of sinful, wicked behaviour? Again, it's hard to see how, how we are slaves to sin unless we see what sin really is. To be a slave to sin need not necessarily mean that you're, you're addicted to some sort of drug or, or, or sexual impurity or, or some other such thing. To be, addicted to, sin, to be a slave to sin means that every thought, every pattern of your actions and behaviour is driven not out of a respect for God, your maker, your creator, your father, but out of a love of self and a desire to exalt yourself and serve yourself. Even if those actions are done in the sphere of religiosity. Thirdly, it's a reminder that when the Bible calls us to avoid sin and turn away from sin, God is not keeping back something good from us. Actually, what God is doing is inviting us back towards himself. Turn away from sin and come to me, the source of all goodness. I'm not withholding goodness from you. I'm giving you goodness. I'm leading you towards goodness, God is saying, by leading you away from sin. How then do we escape sin? If you consider sin only as a bad behaviour that we do, then to fight sin, logically, is to modify our behaviour, to change our actions. And you will often hear in services here at Hollywell us encouraging you to follow the example of Christ. Um, God is changing us and shaping us to be more Christ-like in our lives, we will often say. That Christ-likeness is one of the things we aim for as believers. Is Christ just our example to follow as we try and avoid sin in our lives? Is Christ just our example? I want to say Christ is more than our example. He is our example, But if he is only our example, and if your fight against sin is reduced to that one thing of changing your behaviour, then you've missed the gospel. And you've also not really grasped the strength and the power that sin has on your life. In Romans chapter 5, just before what we read today, chapter 5 verse 21, we're told, Sin reigned in death. Sin rules. Sin reigns in death. You see the way sin reigns by the way each and every person is bound by sin. Each and every person's lives and actions are lived in a pattern that conforms not to obedience to God, but in serving self. Doing what I feel is right and will benefit me and my family. Sin reigns in death. The result of sin, sin's ultimate weapon that it holds against us, is death. And inevitably, each and every person who sins will be led to that point of death. Because as sin leads us further and further away from God, each step in sin is a step away from God, the source of all life. And so sin, uh, death is the inevitable consequence of sin. It is the ultimate weapon. And when sin leads us to that point of death, it can do no more. It's done its worst. That's the most that it can do. Now here is where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. Because a Christian is not just a follower of Christ. And and I say that quite carefully because actually I quite like the term follower to describe what a Christian is. But, But I will say today that a Christian is not 
just a follower of Christ, by which I mean not just a follower in the way a person might follow a celebrity, for example. Uh, you watch what they do, you're interested in, in the clothes they wear and the way they speak and uh, the, the sort of things they get up to in their leisure time. And you might follow them in the sense of, yeah, you'll apply some of those things to your own life and, and see if it helps out. You like to hear about what's going on. You, you like to listen to them. A Christian is not a follower of Jesus like people follow celebrity. A Christian has been united to Jesus, joined to Jesus. Our lives are joined to his. He becomes our, our representative, but not just our representative in a, in a detached sense, more closely than that. Chapter 6, verse 2, don't you know that all of us who are baptised into Christ Jesus... If you've been baptised into Christ Jesus, you're not just baptised into his name as though that's a label that is attached to you. You're baptised into Christ himself. It's a a joining together of lives. The best illustration the Bible gives us of this is really that of a marriage. A husband and wife joined together inseparably for life. One cannot act without it affecting the other. All that they own and all that they have are now shared between them. A Christian is united to Christ. Now, if we are joined to Christ or united to Christ in this way, then we are united to all that he has and all that he has done. And most significantly, Paul is arguing in this chapter, we're united to him in his death. The significance of that is that sin has used its trump card, his most powerful weapon, upon Jesus Christ. And it's got no more left to give. And if it's used up its weapon on Christ, it's also used up its weapon on you. And therefore, because Christ has endured the utmost of what sin can do, it's, it's because Christ has endured its inevitability and got, has gone through that death and risen on the other side, he is now free from the power and control of death, as are you. You are no longer under the power and control of death because it has used up its most powerful weapon already and it's got nothing more left to give. It's worked itself out to its natural conclusion and it's finished. It no longer has power over you. You are free from sin if you are joined to Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised we too may live a new life. You know what it is for a football fan, for example, to be able to celebrate, we won the league, or we won the match, even if they weren't even at the stadium when the match happened, even if they weren't in the same country that the match happened. A football fan can say, we won, because you know this link between the fan and the team that they support. Well, in a much deeper sense, we say, We have been crucified. We have been set free. Not because we were there at the time, but because we have been joined to Christ and because he has done it for us. Death no longer has mastery over him. Therefore, death no longer has mastery over those who are joined to him. Verse 7. We often talk about Jesus on the cross taking our punishment for sin. And I would not ever want to water down that truth. But here's another truth to sit alongside it. In fact, which stems from it. He's taken our punishment for sin, but he's also freed us from the the power of sin. We're no longer under the control of sin. Now this helps us get to grips really with what a Christian 
truly is. What it means to follow Christ. There might be people here who have been in the church and in the church society or community, you might call it, for many years of their life. There might be young people who are, who are still growing up in the church. And probably you don't have much problem with following the example of Christ. You probably see how living in a way that Christ teaches us has benefits. It's worthwhile in some ways. But are you really joined to Christ? Are you united to him? And when we talk about trusting Christ, it's not just believing that he exists or believing that what he says is worthwhile. It's trusting that that he has gone through death on your behalf. That he has suffered the, the penalty for sin. That he has been freed from sin on your behalf. And you become a follower of him. You, you become joined to him. Not just in the sense of you like to listen to him and, and you, you like to hear what he says. But your life becomes inseparably attached to all that he, he is and all that he has done. That's what real Christianity is. And anything less than that is, is no Christianity at all. Because our salvation is not just from Christ. Our salvation is Christ himself. Unless you've been joined to Christ, you are not saved. But the, the greatness of the gospel is that anyone is invited to come and be joined to Christ. Through faith. We receive him. Sin is more than bad behaviour. Christ is more than our example. Finally, and how should this all affect the way we live? Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In this section, again, I, I don't want to bring you back under a new set of laws. I'm not here to, to, to give you a list of, of right things to do and wrong things to do. Ways to use your time and things that you ought to avoid. I want to avoid the idea that bad behaviour brings punishment and good behaviour brings reward. Actually, the Bible says sin brings punishment and Jesus frees us from sin. It's not bad behaviour is punishment and good behaviour is reward. Sin brings punishment Jesus frees us from sin. Therefore, once you've grasped that, once you have been united to Christ, verse 11 tells us, go on then, live out that truth. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Don't let sin take control of you any longer. You you had no power previously to resist sin. All that you could do, all that you were ever taught, all that your the, the ways your brain, your mind, your your spirit functioned, was to serve self and to reject God. The only choices that you had were choices between different types of sin. I can sin in this way, or I can sin in this way. Now in Jesus Christ, you have real freedom, real choice, because you can choose now. Either I will serve myself. Or I will serve Christ, as I was designed for. Or I can step closer to God, just as I was made for. As one who has been united to Christ, you are free to choose. And Paul says, verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You have that choice, you have that option. Not to let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't offer the, the parts of your body to sin. By that it means it means all all of who you are as a person, not just your fingers or your toes, your minds as the source of your reason and your ambitions. Don't give your eyes to sin, as in uh, don't don't set your eyes on on 
on desires that are sinful that would lead you away from Christ. Don't allow, don't give your feet to sin to take you to places which would take you away from Christ. Don't give your hands to sin as the tools which you use to carry out your abilities and exert your influence over others. Don't use your heart to sin as that which you love with and that which causes you to cherish those things in your life. Don't give your heart to sin. Don't give your money to sin as an extension of your power and your will. Don't give your tongue to sin as the tool which you use for worship and praise, as the tool you use to engage with those around you. You have a choice of what you do with these members of your body. You can either use them in the way that sin promotes. You can speak, think, work, love in patterns that are designed and promoted by the sinful the sinfulness of unbelief or pride or rejection or ignorance of God. That's one way to use your body parts. Another way to use your body parts is to use them in the way that God teaches us. To offer them, in God, offer them to God in patterns promoted by his, his, his loving generosity, by his faithfulness, and by the holiness of his spirit which dwells within each one of us who are joined to Christ. And understand this, that there's no middle ground. There's no like halfway house. Oh, sometimes I'm doing really wicked things and sometimes I'm doing holy things and most of the time I'm somewhere in between. That's not what the Bible presents us with. That's why I read to the end of the chapter. Paul says, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. There's a huge difference between the two and there's no middle ground. Don't fool yourself that when you're making a choice between two different sins, really, you're a slave to yourself. You you are your own master. It's not true. In that case, you're a slave to sin. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. How much of your day is, is lived out with no consideration of who God is or the claim that he has on your life? Just lived through on, on autopilot, guided by who knows what principle. That's the, the motive behind what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians. I, it's my aim to take every thought captive. Every thought. And therefore every action related to every thought is captive for the sake of Christ. Because I don't want to give any of it to sin. Because I am free from sin. And it's a work in progress. Giving myself, giving my thoughts to God. Alive to God, but dead to sin. This is work that we ought to be at always, whatever time of the year, whatever time of history we are in. But in the pandemic, we face peculiar and particular temptations. Perhaps your financial situation has changed. Maybe you've got a lot more disposable income. Maybe you've got a lot less or none. Each of them situations brings temptation to covet. It brings temptation toward greed to lust after what we do not have. There is a stress added for many people. Uh, With all the extra responsibilities and uh, work that we now have to do at home, not being able to get out and and go to the workplace like we once used to. And the stress opens the floodgates for us to to seek out any, any small relief that we might find, anything that might numb our minds, anything that might take it... Take take our minds and thoughts away from the difficulties of the day that we've just endured and that we are due to endure tomorrow. And in that moment of weakness, it's so easy to 
open the door to sin and to offer the parts of our body to sin rather than to God. Fear has been prevalent. Fear teaches us to put our trust in someone other than God, our good father. It teaches us to put our trust in the healthcare system, in economics, in science, as ultimate, not as a gift from our father, but as our saviour. We've got all sorts of extra time on our hands, some of us. And the frustration is that when we're busy, we wish we had more time to do the things we'd like to do that we know are good for us. And then when we get that extra time, it's so easily frittered away and wasted. We numb our minds. We feed our um, sinfulness. We lose our zeal for Christ. Perhaps we lose our generosity. Perhaps we're prone to laziness. Perhaps we neglect our faith. And we're cut off from the church, from the other believers who would so often be an encouragement to us. Our worship can tend to become stale and forced, half-hearted and insincere, and our love for our brothers and sisters can grow cold. The lockdown situation that we're in offers unique temptations to us in regards to sin. What ought we to to do about it? Realise this, that no no matter how respectable we are to others, no matter how much of a, of a good show we're able to put on through lockdown, no matter how much of a semblance of normality we can achieve, if our lives continue to be lived in ignorance of God or apathy towards God or even downright rejection of God, then we have not yet finished rooting out sin in our lives. We've not yet finished that work. You were saved in order to know God. The gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. Sinners brought back to know God. The greatest command that Jesus gives us is to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our minds, and all of our strength. And although we're tired, although we're unmotivated, although we're discouraged, I would urge you, do not give the members of your body to sin. You are free from its influence. You are free from its power. Choose. Make that choice that you now have the freedom to make. Choose to give the members of your body, not to sin, but to God. And secondly, don't accept the lie that sin continues to make us. In the long term, it, it is never able to deliver on its promises. What benefit will you reap from those things that you are now ashamed of. They lead to death, says Paul. That's the only place it will take you. Don't believe the lie that that in this sin there is happiness, there is comfort, there is power. It is not able to deliver. All sin can ever give is fear, shame, guilt, and eventually death. The key to defeating sin comes in two parts. You need to hate it for what it is. You need to see the damage that it does to you. And you need to replace the love of sin with a love for something else. With a love for someone else. The Lord Jesus Christ. Two sides of the same coin. Hate sin for what it is. And love something else in its place. Love Jesus Christ more than you love any of what sin might promise you. And when you see the graciousness offered to us in the gospel... How could you not love Jesus Christ? 
How could you not love him for his faithfulness, for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf? How could you not love him for going through death for us in order to free us from sin? Therefore, whether whether in lockdown you are hard-pressed with, with extra stresses on you, or whether you find yourself with mountains of free time, not knowing what to do with it, I would urge you, count yourselves in Christ, dead to sin. Escape its influence. Hate its effect on your life. Disbelieve its lies. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Freed from sin in Christ. Accepted by Christ. Forgiven by him. And utterly and absolutely dependent upon him for life. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord God, Heavenly Father, we have here before us both a great encouragement and reason to be thankful and praise you. Because we see that we are freed from sin, not by our own efforts, but by Jesus Christ. And because of what he's done, we can know that we are, we are objectively freed from sin. Not by measuring our own ability in fighting sin, but by looking to that historical event where Jesus Christ died and then rose again. That has happened. And so we know that if we are joined to him, that has happened to us. We are freed from the power of sin. What an encouragement, what reason we have to praise. And yet also such a challenge. Because we know that although sin might not have power over us like it once used to, surely it still influences us, tempts us, and we feel that so keenly. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the truths we've been considering this morning. Help us to count ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in the way that you instruct us to do. Help us to resist the temptation to offer the parts of our bodies to sin. And by your Spirit, help us to put to death sin in order that we might follow Jesus Christ more closely, be more dependent on him, and live out the reality of the freedom that he has bought for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.